for the month of July, we've been kind of wrestling with these teachings of Jesus that are taught in the form of a parable. And uh, oftentimes when Jesus is kind of uh, teaching his disciples uh, the kind of truth of how uh, the world works, of how God is at work in the world, uh, what we find from Jesus isn't necessarily like this systematic theology or like a three-point sermon. When he starts to talk about like what God is up to in this world, he tells a story of a father who has two sons. And then the story unfolds. And, and it's really this brilliant form of teaching that Jesus, as he, as he shares these stories, the, the people who are listening uh, find themselves in the story. And they find themselves identifying with different characters. And they start to kind of understand uh, the truth that Jesus is teaching um, as it unfolds in the story. They wrestle with it. They chew on it. They take it home and, and try to figure out what it meant. And uh, it's a very uh, interesting way to teach. And so for July, we've been looking at these stories of Jesus. And today I want to look at the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. And in, there, it comes in, in two of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 25, and then there's this parallel passage in Luke 19 uh, that I want to look at. The story called the parable of the talents. And as, uh, as Jesus tells these stories, uh, it's, it's important to note that he is using a lot of metaphor. And so as he's explaining how God is at work in the world, much of it in these stories is very symbolic. And, and so we understand the truth that comes from the metaphor, but it's, it's important also to not like, get caught up on some of the small details of the story. And even in this story, the parable of the talents, what we find in each gospel, Jesus tells the story a little bit differently. And so this is probably one of the stories that Jesus would tell when he would go about teaching. And uh, depending on like, his audience or where he was, he tells it a little bit differently. But the gist of it's the same. And it's important to note that as Jesus tells this story, something very important had happened politically in the world that he lived in, uh, kind of around the time he was born. And so the time he was born, there was this uh, king named King Herod, Herod the Great, that was in charge of uh, uh, Ju Judea. And Herod the Great uh, was, was a tyrant. Uh, the Jewish people uh, kind of tolerated him because they had some kind of uh, roots uh, family-wise that went back with him. But he was basically like a puppet king that the Roman Empire had established in Judea. And so the Jewish people, they didn't really like him, but they tolerated him. And uh, he was a ruthless uh, ruler. And uh, right around the time Jesus died, Herod the Great, or right around the time Jesus was born, Herod the Great dies. And the area under his control gets split up into three different areas ruled by uh, three of his sons. And uh, one of his sons is named Archelaus. Archelaus kind of sounds like a Pokemon figure. I don't know. <laughs> Archelaus was a bad dude. And the people in uh, the country that he was being ruled by couldn't stand Archelaus. They knew Archelaus' reputation. He made, like if his dad was ruthless, he was just as bad, every bit as bad. And so Archelaus wasn't just given the kingdom. Uh, remember, this, was, this position was, was given by Rome. And so when his dad dies, Archelaus goes to Rome to meet with Augustus Caesar to basically plead his case of why he should be in charge of this. He should be the king of this region. Well, the Jewish people know this is happening. And they don't want Archelaus to rule over them. And so as Archelaus goes to Caesar to request this position, the Jewish people send this delegate of like 50 people, and they sail to Rome, and they get there quicker than Archelaus. And they show up to Caesar, and they say, listen, this guy's not fit to rule. Uh, he's he's, uh, he's a, a terrible, just terrible and oppressive. 
Uh, we, don't, we don't want him. We're, we're sick of the Herods. In fact, we're so sick of the Herods, we, we're, we're, up, we're open to whatever you want to do, Caesar Augustus, to rule us. If you want to make us like a, a province of, of Syria, you can do that, bring in a new king. We're just choosing, you know, the lesser of two evils here. So that's happening then. And uh, as they're choosing the lesser of two evils, Archaeus gets there and hears that the people that he's supposed to rule over are complaining about him. And so he talks to Caesar, and what happens is Caesar says, I'm going to let you rule over these people, but you're not going to get the title of king. You're just going to be even more of a puppet of mine. And you can be in charge, but you don't have the same authority that a king would. So you're going to be kind of like a governor of this area. So Archaeus goes home. Here's what happens when he gets back. He gets back to his to home where he has all the power, gets back to home and decides he's going to take it out on these people who've rebelled against him. And what he does is he comes down on these people so ruthlessly. Tons of people just murdered. And establishes his rule. Pays them back for complaining. And this all happens about uh, sometime around the time Jesus is born. So when we get to Luke chapter 19, this is about 30 years after this event has taken place. This political drama. And as Archelaus becomes the ruler, he establishes this great palace in this town not far from Jerusalem called Jericho. And as Jesus uh, in Luke chapter 19 is traveling and he gets ready to tell this story, he stops by Jericho and he's on his way to Jerusalem and this is towards the end of Jesus's life and he knows that he's going towards his death. And Jesus knows that he's going to go towards his death and he's going to die on the cross and then he's going to rise from the grave. He knows what's coming and he's preparing his disciples for what's about to take place. And he's just outside of Jericho, and in uh, Luke 19.11, he tells this story. The parable of the ten minus, or the parable of the talents. It says in verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So Jesus starts this story. Immediately, the people in this area would have thought, well, we've, we've seen something like that before. It, gap, it captures their attention. And then it says, so before he leaves, he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minus. Minus is a form of money. And he says, put this money to work until I come back. So the king's getting ready to travel and go on this trip, and he's entrusted his servants with this amount of money. And it says, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. You can imagine, like, Jesus is telling the story, the people who are hearing it are kind of looking around thinking, huh, <laughs> I've heard this story before. Where is this going, right? Uh, as the king travels, it says in verse 15, he was made king, however, and he returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. So Jesus is telling the story, and it's a parable, but it's oddly similar to this political event that happened 30 years earlier in their history. But Jesus is telling it in a different context. He's telling it as a parable, and he says this is a parable. So it's not, it's not like a true story. But it's a story of how the world works. 
And these Jewish rabbis, when they would tell stories, oftentimes these parables, the, the, the person of power in the parable, the king or the authority, would represent God. And so as Jesus starts to tell this story, they would automatically think, well, the king that's leaving must be God. But that's, that sure sounds a lot like Archelaus' story in our history. So what is Jesus doing here? Because Archelaus is definitely nothing like the God that we know. And as Jesus is telling the story, it's this kind of master art of telling a story within a story. And even though Jesus makes this kind of connection between himself as God and Archelaus, the outcome of this is actually kind of different. And as Jesus is going towards Jerusalem, he knows that he's going to his death. And he knows that he's going to be leaving for a short time. And he's setting up basically his disciples to say, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere. And by the way, I'm the king. I'm a king of a very different kind of kingdom. And people here are rejecting that. They don't recognize that. There's a new kingdom that's coming and, and, and that I've come to bring into this world. And in the same way they were rejecting Archelaus, they're rejecting me. It's very different, of course, because Archelaus' kingdom was all about oppression and power and political might, where Jesus' kingdom is very different. It's a kingdom of hope and love and light. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that reflects heaven here and now. But Jesus is saying in the same way, what's happening here is that people have rejected me as king. And he says, I'm going away, and I'm, he's heading towards Jerusalem, but he's letting his disciples know, there's something coming for you. And as Jesus leaves, he gives these gifts to his disciples. We know as the story goes. This is a story about gifting. For the king in this story, as he leaves and goes on his trip, he entrusts his servants with certain gifts. It says ten minas. Uh, one mina would be, uh, it's an amount of money. We know that one mina, remember he entrusts ten minas to these ten servants. One is pretty much the same value of three months' wages for the working class at this time period. And so as Jesus says, uh, this, this man entrusts them with these ten minas, basically he's giving them an emergency fund. Three, I mean, think of someone just gave you three months' salary. That would be pretty, pretty sweet, right? That's a big gift. We hear, we hear like one mina per servant, and we think, well, that's not very much. No, that's actually a lot. In fact, in this parallel passage in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus tells this story... The master leaves and he gives his servant talents, which are these basically like weights of gold. And in that story, uh, like one talent, what we know is, is equal to like 6,000 uh, denarii, which is like their, their coinage or whatever. But it's like 20 years wages. Just one talent that Jesus gives is worth 20 year wages. And to one man, he leaves five talents. And to one man, he leaves 10 talents. And so as we hear these stories and we hear this distribution that the master gives to his servant, he's entrusting them with something extremely valuable. This is a, a precious gift. This isn't just a, a small amount of, of money. Like, like the people who are hearing this are like, that, that's insane for, for a master to leave and to entrust his servants with that amount of money. There's a preciousness of the gifts that God entrusts to people. And as Jesus is leaving to go to Jerusalem, he's kind of setting up this tension where he's, as the king, he's leaving, but he's been given gifts to his disciples to steward in his absence. So the story speaks of the preciousness of gifts that God has entrusted to our care. 
And what we find in the other one is that no servant is given more than he's capable of handling. So Jesus has an understanding of like capacity. All of us have been given gifts according to our passions and our capacity. But even the lowest gift that's given uh, has significant responsibility. In the story in Matthew 25, one guy gets 10 get talents and the other person gets one. And you're like, well, that's not fair. We're like, yeah, but the one is worth like 20 years of wages. It's still a pretty good gift. And Jesus talks about this idea of giving gifts to his disciples as he leaves. And we come to this truth that God gives gifts. God gives each of us valuable gifts. Every single one of us has been given a valuable gift. Now, some people are more talented than others. Um, I like to say that I don't really have any talents. That's why I'm a pastor. I just surround myself with talented people. Some people are very talented. Tim Stansel is one of the most talented people I know. Like, anything that he wants to learn how to do, he's like one of those guys that learns how to do it, and then he's real successful with it, you know? He's probably the guy that in school he didn't really have to study and he'd still get A's, you know? Um, some people are very talented. But all of us, no matter what our, our, our talents-wise, God has entrusted us with gifts. We've all been given unique things in our life that God entrusts us with. The gift, though, from God, the gift uh, that he gives us for life, everything in life is grace, is always a gift to be used to be a gift to others. From very early on in the, in the scripture story, back to the time of Abraham, when Abraham starts this relationship with God, God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but I'm, I'm blessing you to be a blessing to others. I'm entrusting you with a gift of blessing, but you're supposed to use that to bless others. The gift was never just for Abraham. We talk about that as followers of Jesus. like We, we have this gift of eternal life. We have this gift of salvation, but it's not just a gift for us. It's a gift that was given to us so that we can give to others. We can distribute it. We're blessed to be a blessing. And the gifts that God gives us are always to be used to distribute it to others. When we think of this idea of, of God giving us gifts in the context of, of the church, we all have different gifts that can be used for the common good of our, of our community, not just here on Sunday morning in Desert City, but as the body of Christ for our community in North Phoenix. We've been given these gifts to be used. Romans chapter 12 Verses 4 through 8 says this. It talks about the church. It says, For just as each of us is one body with many members, and these members all have, uh, do not have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, the church. And each of us belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If, it says if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then lead diligently. If it's to show mercy, to do it cheerfully. These kind of gifts that we've been given as humans are these intangible <laughs> gifts, and they're valuable. They're intangible gifts that God gives us to be used for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. And it says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to the common good. We follow this master, this king, 
who entrust us with gifts. These gifts are intangible to come in many different forms. But they're these gifts that are to be used for the common good of our communities. They're gifts to be distributed. We're stewards of them, and we can take them, and we can do something with them or not. All of us have been given these valuable gifts. And then what we find as we continue through this story is that God, he's, he gives this gift, but then he also rewards the gift. Now, this is interesting to think about when you, when you think that God actually rewards people that have used the gift. But God gives us gifts and then rewards us for them. And here's what I'm not saying, is when it comes to us using our gifts, we don't believe in, like, the way that God works in this world is like karma. It's not like if you do a good thing, then something good back will happen to you. Because the gift is grace. The gift is undeserving. And so as we, we use our gifts, God gives us more grace. He expands our capacity. He rewards us with more gifts to be used for more of the common good. And as we read through the story, what we find is when the master comes home and he sees what the servants have done, starting in verse 16, it says, The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. This gift that you've given me, I've, I've used it, and it's multiplied. There was one, but now there's ten. And the master says, "Good, Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. It's like, wow, that escalated quickly, right? But it, it's, he says, what you've done here with, with a very small matter, you've been a good steward of. You've been faithful with this thing that I've given you. And I'm, your capacity is now expanding. Because I've seen what you do with the gifts that I've given you, and they're used for the common good. And he says, because of that, you get to be in charge of 10 cities. There's, some, there's this principle of faithfulness. When we're faithful with these things that God gives us, he entrusts us with more because he knows that we're going to use it not just for ourselves, but for the common good of this world. The second guy comes and he says, sir, your mina has earned five more. So the master says, well, take charge of five cities. That is, I, there's like an Oprah moment here. Like, you get a city. Everyone gets a city. Like, he's like, you know, everyone, yoo-hoo. And So he gives them five cities. And what we find is that, that for, this, for this man who, who, who uses the gifts God gives him and, and for the common good and multiplies it, he as well is entrusted with more. And so God, God does reward faithfulness. He does reward like good stewardship of, of these intangible gifts that he's given all of us. But it's not for, not for us. The reward isn't so that we could increase, you know, our empires or, or our lives. It, it's given so that we can uh, be more influential. And what we find here is there's this, this uh, God expanding the capacity of these people who are faithful in the small, everyday things of life. And then also with that, there's this kind of reckoning moment as this master comes back. Like, he wants to know, like, what have you done with the gifts that I've given you in my absence? And there's also this moment of accountability. There's this moment of reckoning, as the story goes. It says, uh, so God, God keeps us accountable for the gifts we have been given. But something interesting happens with this third character in this story. It says in verse 20, Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is my mina. I might have laid, uh, he says, I have, I have kept it laid away, in a piece of cloth. 
I didn't do anything with it. I hid it. I kept it safe. In the story in Matthew, the guy takes it and he buries it in the ground. Doesn't do anything with the gift God has given him. And he says this, I was afraid of you because I knew you were a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. So he has this, this view of the master where he's afraid of him. His view of the master is skewed. He has this idea that the master is this harsh, this harsh ruler. As you enter into this story, what you find is that because of his, this view of, of who the master is, it influences how he uses the gifts that have been given. He's afraid to use them. He's afraid to take risks. He would rather do nothing. His master replied with this phrase, which I think is interesting. He says, I will judge you by your own words. You wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money into a deposit? Do something with it. So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. And then he said to those standing by, take this mina away from him and give it to those who have ten. And the people replied, but they already have ten. And he replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Which we read that and we're like, yeah, that, that's harsh. That sounds extremely harsh. And in fact, it sounds kind of like what this third guy was thinking about, this master, that he was harsh. Remember, as Jesus tells this story, there's this parallel to what's happening with Archelaus and now Jesus is telling it in new light. But something happens here that's interesting in the dialogue. The guy has this skewed view of the master. And so he does nothing with it. He's been given this task. And he's, the, other, the other passage says that he's lazy. He's apathetic with it. And so really, like what he's saying is like, oh, I was, I was just scared that you would, would be this way. But really, there's probably something else going on in his own heart. Or out of his apathy to the world around him. He decides not to use it. And all of a sudden now there's this, well, it's, it's your fault. It's your fault, God, because I, I knew that you were going to be this, this harsh ruler. And then the king has this line, I will judge you by your own words. At the end of the other story that's very similar to this, it doesn't talk about them killing, it talks about them uh, sending those who have been lazy with the gift out into the darkness where there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's this imagery of separation from the master. And I think it's, it's something that we need to think about because as we think of kind of our calling in this world, what God has empowered us to do, he's given us a responsibility. And the reason that these people get in trouble is not because they're, you know, they're, they're not like involved in all these like evil things where they're, they're sinful or, you know, they're not, they're not going out and, uh, smoking and drinking and, and chewing or going with girls who do. I totally messed up that line. But, you know, like the, for them, they're held accountable. They're held accountable because God had given them something and they've wasted it. They haven't done anything with it. They've been apathetic to using it when they could have been using it for the common good. They don't do anything with it. There's, there's a danger in that to, to have God 
uh, to give us gifts and to, to disclaim those gifts. And I think this is important because we live in a world surrounded by brokenness. We live in a world, every, every week we come here on Sunday and it's like we need to pray for some tragedy that's happened. Some mass shooting or some, uh, there's, it's like there's this, this, this war that's going on around us and like no one can even identify like who are the bad guys. Like we, 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 we've got people from our own country shooting each other. We've got people across seas shooting each other. There, there's all sorts of just uh, terror and terrorism throughout our world. And, and, and that's the stuff that we see on the news. When you think about how this idea that all of the creation is groaning, we live in this world that is broken, that there's tension, that there's pain all around us, there's hunger, there's these, these huge social uh, uh, ills that, that just rob our country of life, rob our world of life, rob our world of joy, the life that God offers us. There's all sorts of pain and suffering. And I can't help but think that as God looks out at this world and he sees the pain and suffering, he's empowered his church, this body of people, this group of people that are in relationship with him to do something about the suffering around it. And we consider the brokenness of our world, it's easy to kind of point fingers at everyone else is at fault. But the church those who are servants of the master have been empowered and entrusted with gifts to be used for the common good. And that's, I think, the danger and the urgency and the message for us as followers of Jesus. And we've been entrusted with things to be gifts for others, and we don't use them. This destruction is like spiraling out of control. The answer God has used is his people in this world who are supposed to be good news to it. So there's huge ramifications when we're not living into our calling. And then this idea of kind of the separation from God. Like historically the church has understood, you know, heaven and hell for this afterlife. And we have all sorts of pictures of, of what that looks like, this, this heaven and hell, and we don't like to talk about it. But my understanding of what it is, is it's a separation from God. And it's the separation from who we are created to be. And my understanding of, of, of even in, when you look at this passage, it says uh, that the, the master, uh, he looks at the servant and he says, I will judge you by your own words. You see, we have this relationship with God. But this relationship with God is based on love. And in that love relationship, God can't force us to love him. God can't force us to be his people here on earth. Because as soon as he starts to force us to do that, it's no longer us loving him. For Archelaus, he could do everything he could in his power and might to try to get the people that he ruled over to be loyal to him. But everyone knows they don't truly love him. And God is different. God offers us relationship. And so then when we, when we choose something outside of that, it's like these words, he, he judges us by our own words. C.S. Lewis says that he loves us so much that he eventually just gives us what we want. And for some people, 
It's this road that leads to destruction. So Jesus approaches this story, and he's talking about these people. He's saying, you're servants of God. He loves you. He's entrusted you with gifts. And you understand that your life has been used as a calling to make this world better. And as you start down this path where you're using your gifts, where you're hiding them, where you're, you're afraid to take risks with the intangible gifts God's given you, you become very apathetic to the suffering around you. You become very isolated. I remember uh, I was at a spring training baseball game um, a couple years back. And I'm a big baseball fan. I'm heartbroken over the Diamondbacks right now, by the way. But I'm a big fan of baseball. I grew up playing baseball, played in college. And all my entire life, uh, I had this desire to be a baseball player, a professional baseball player. And everyone's like, yeah, that's like everyone's dream when they're a kid. Like, I really wanted to do that with my life. And so I spent 15 years playing year-round baseball. And I remember uh, having a chance to go to college to play. I was somewhat gifted. Um, I was a pitcher. I could throw pretty hard. had some good pitches. And there was this, this desire in my life to someday make it to the major leagues. And the older I got, as I got to college, I had spent and invested so much time in my life into this thing which I felt like was a calling. And as I got to college, I uh, ended up breaking my collarbone, ended up being way too much work for what I wanted to do, and I ended up walking away from the game. Just walked away from it. And it was like this moment in my life where I was like, giving up on this dream that I would felt like I'd been prepped for for like 15 years. And I'm at the spring training baseball game after I got married and um, I was there with my, my in-laws were working this event at the game and it was the a Mariners game out in Peoria. And I remember sitting, we got there because we're working this event, we got to go like sit kind of like front row and just there, the players were warming up and, uh, and we were like, we got a chance to like talk to the players and my father-in-law, Kevin, I remember him looking at me and saying, this must feel like heaven to you. You're, like this, you're this close to the game. And I was like, yeah, this is amazing, and this is so much fun. And then as I sat there and watched them warm up and realized, like, these are just men. They're, like, my size. There's nothing special about them. They just, like, worked harder, and they kept working when I gave up. And as I sat there and just, like, watched them warm up to play, I was like, this isn't heaven. This is, like, this is hell for me. I'm this close to my dream, and I can't go out there and play. I can't participate in it. And, 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 I, and I gave up on that dream, and now I'm, like, face-to-face -face with these guys who I'm, like, I, I could play with these guys. I could, if I would have worked harder, I could, I could play. And I remember thinking, like, this moment, like, i got to get out of here. This is, like, miserable to me to be this close to it. And I started thinking about that idea of, this, this is, like, heaven to you. I'm, like, no, it's something else. And I think that is even what is being talked about here in this parable. God has entrusted us with these gifts for the world. We've been empowered, called to be a certain kind of people. And to work really hard with those gifts to make this a better place. And it's when we take that gift and bury it, when we take that gift and hide it in a cloth, we miss out on this calling God has for us. There's this isolation, this separation. What hell is, it's seeing the party that you were invited to that you didn't go to on Facebook and realizing, like, you're missing out. 
if heaven is this party, if heaven is this place where everything happens exactly as God wants it, there are people who out of their own selfishness choose something else and it spirals out of control. All of us have been given gifts to participate in this kingdom work here and now. And it's heaven all the way to heaven and it's hell all the way to hell. And Jesus talks about in this parable, once again, life given to us eternal is grace, a gift from God. And we're invited to jump in. And it's always an invitation. And it's something that some people won't want any part of. Won't want any part of. We uh, recently, almost done, recently uh, Ezra, our two-year-old, has been moving from his crib to a big boy bed. Most of you, like, have kids. We have a lot of kids here. Uh, You understand that that's a very critical moment when you move a kid from a crib to a big boy bed. It's a fight. Jim Gaffigan talks about how it becomes like this reverse hostage situation where you're like, stay in there. We'll do anything. You want donuts? We'll give you donuts. Stay. And we've been switching Ezra over to this big boy bed. And the other kids switched over when they were two. Ezra's like two and a half. And we haven't switched him yet because, like, when we try to entrust him with the big boy bed, he doesn't stay in it. And so, like, it'll be, like, 2 in the morning, and I'll be, like, I'll hear a noise, and I'll look down the hallway, and I'll see this little blonde head pitter-patter down the hallway. I'm, like, what is he doing? It's, like, 2 in the morning. So what happens is, like, we're entrusting him with this bed, and then he doesn't, he, he just, he, does, he abuses the responsibility. I mean, <laughs> and so what happens is we say, okay, we're, we're taking you back to the crib. You're losing this opportunity to have this big boy bed. So we're now, like, and, and for his own safety, we're, like, you can't be in here. And so he, he loses that responsibility. And then last night, two nights ago, he started climbing out of his bed, which you all know is like, now it's like go time. You have to put him in. Um, and so, I, but I think it's the same thing. God entrusts us with these gifts. Each one of us has a different gift. And the more that we use it, the more our capacity expands. And the more that we don't use these gifts God's given us, the more that we isolate from him from the community around us, and from the kingdom activity in this world. And this parable is about this God who entrusts his people with gifts to be used for the common good. And the invitation is to allow those gifts to be activated in your heart, to be citizens of heaven, to pursue the work of God here and now. I want to close with this quote uh, from a book that I read this last year called Visions of Vocation. And I think when it comes to our work here as a church, as individuals, as a community, uh, Steve Garber was talking about this idea of our calling. He says, but the story of sorrow is not the whole story of life either. There's also wonder and glory and joy and meaning in the vocations that are ours. There's good work to be done by every son of Adam and daughter of Eve all over the face of the earth. There are flowers to be grown, songs to be sung, bread to be baked, justice to be done, mercy to be shown, beauty to be created, good stories to be told, houses to be built, technologies to be developed, fields to to farm, and children to educate. All of us have these intangible gifts that God has entrusted us with. And someday we believe Christ is coming back. We want to use these gifts to participate in this redemptive work in the world. 
So today, as Tim comes up and closes us, something to reflect on. When it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to your view of the master, do you see God as this, this harsh person, this harsh ruler that is going to come down on you? Or do you see God as this master, this king that has empowered you to do this great work here in this world? And the hope today is that you would, the invitation is to join in this work. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you have no idea what a relationship with God looks like. And this is all new. What it looks like is like you're getting on board with joining God with his redemptive work in this world. And maybe for you, you have this relationship with God, but you know it's stagnant. You know you're not doing anything. And you need God to activate those gifts in your life today. Each week we close with communion. We close with uh, the sacrament, the bread and the cup of juice. The bread represents this work of God in this world through Christ where his body was broken open on the cross. And the blood represents, uh, the juice represents the blood of Christ which is poured out we believe that the breaking of the body and the pouring out of the blood is what brings healing for all the broken things in this world. And now as the body of Christ, we do the same. So let's take communion today and let's reflect on this relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us, that you would entrust us with gifts. Gifts for the common good. Lord, we want to be the people of of heaven who use our lives to be a gift to others that do things that have eternal value so Lord we just pray that you would empower us today to be your people that you would expand our capacity that you'd reward our faithfulness to things that we are good stewards in so that we could do more work for you so stir our hearts today, Lord. Remind us of this great story and this calling that we're a part of as your servants entrusted with gifts. In your sons and we pray.